so that we may be saved. Amen? So that we may be saved. Amen? Amen. There we go. There we go. I want to make sure you're all awake. I, I'm, I'm so excited uh, this morning to have the opportunity to continue our series, Rescue, that we started last week. Because whether we realize it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, we all need to be rescued. And hopefully, many of us in this room have experienced that rescue. And today, we're going to turn our attentions to see how God's rescue plan plays itself out in the story of King David. All right, so go ahead and turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going to read that here in just a moment. But before we do, I want to kind of help lay some groundwork so that we can know exactly what we're talking about here, okay? Uh, th this chapter in 2 Samuel, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, marks an incredibly significant milestone in the ongoing disclosure of God's rescue plan to the world. In fact, some would say that this chapter here in 2 Samuel is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, but for all the craziness that happens at the beginning of 1 Samuel and some craziness that's going to happen after 1 Samuel chapter 7, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, this chapter seems really calm and, and almost kind of boring. If we're being honest, there's not a whole lot of action taking place. In fact, all of the action takes place in the form of a conversation, just a conversation that happens. But in this chapter, we're going to see that it plays a vital role to bridge the link of the promise of a Savior to Adam that we talked about last week and to the coming of a Savior in Jesus that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. So what we're about to talk about here, what we're about to read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is alluded to in one way or another all throughout the Bible. And in fact, the words that God speaks here are still shaping human history even today, even right now. So let's read, follow along with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. Uh, and that's a lengthy chapter, so you guys can stay seated this morning. But follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you, the people of Israel, from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd the people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. You shall build, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray together. God, you are good. God, we trust you today. God, we celebrate and welcome the rescue that you provide for us. Thank you that even when we didn't even realize we were in peril, you came and rescued us. Thank you that we can be reminded of that today through the words you spoke to David, through the prophet Nathan. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Remind us of your steadfast love. Remind us of how you want to be in relationship with us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's much that we can learn about God's rescue plan from this passage. The covenant with David would bring about the promised blessings that were anticipated in that creation covenant that we talked about last week and the blessings promised in the covenants with Israel at Mount Sinai and with Abraham when God made a covenant with him back in Genesis. All of those things would be realized through this plan, this rescue plan that God has here. So let's look at how it unfolds, okay? The first thing that we see here is that God's rescue plan is based on his covenant love for his people. God's rescue plan is based on his covenant love for his people. I want to set the scene for you so that I can make sure that we understand what we're reading about here. Now, David and the prophet Nathan are sitting on the veranda at the royal palace in Jerusalem. God has given David and Israel rest from all of their enemies, which means that they've won all the battles. God has led them to win all the battles. Things are good in Israel. Life is good. Things are great for King David. And I like to think they were probably each drinking a glass of Welch's grape juice and enjoying the evening together on that veranda. And a thought comes into David's mind. He looks down from the veranda, and he sees the tabernacle down there. And a thought enters his head, and he says, Hey, I should build a house for God to live in here in Jerusalem. To which Nathan responds, Dude, yes! You write the check and we'll start building, man. Let's do it. This sounds great. This is the part where levity comes into the sermon here. Like, it's okay to laugh, all right? Just want to make sure everybody understands that. Lighten up, people. So there's this plan, and like, things are good in Israel. Things are going really, really well. And David does not have a bad plan here, per se. But it's not God's plan. God actually has a different thought. And so David desired to build this house for the Lord, but the Lord countered by saying that he would build a house for David. And he delivers a message to Nathan that neither he nor David could have expected. I mean, can you imagine Nathan going back to David to deliver this message? I mean, the pastor of the city at the time going back to your biggest donor and saying, you know how you wrote that giant check yesterday? Yeah, we're not going to need it, actually, right? This room is so dead right now, guys. Come on. This is good material I'm giving you here. No response. That's right. Tough crap. 
It's okay. But we see in the response to the fact that God had, has not forgotten his covenant love for his people, even though he tells David, no, you're not going to build that for me. He tells David no, but he's not forgotten his covenant love. And there's three ways that we see that here in verses 1 through 7. First, we see that God wants to be with his people. Look at what he says uh, in verse 6. God says through Nathan, he says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, the people of Israel from Egypt, to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges commanding that they build a house for me of cedar. So from the time that God led the Israelites out of Egypt until now, God has lived in their midst. He's been with them. He has traveled with them. He has gone with them. He has been in a similar estate to them, living in tents. And as they lived in tents, God dwelled in a tent because he wanted to live among them. He wants to dwell with them and share in their condition. God loves his people so much that he wants to be in relationship with them. He wants to be with them. We also see here that God pokes a little bit of fun at David as well. He's, God, God doesn't need David. God doesn't need any of us for that matter. God says to David, hey, listen, do you really think that I'm worried about the accommodations down there? Do you really think that I need you to build a house for me? In, first, in, in verse 5, we see that there. He says, uh, David, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I don't need that from you, David, is what God is saying. David may have had a really nice palace, but God loves living among his people, and he loves them deeply. And then we also see that God flips the script on David as well. When we enter this chapter, David is believing that he's in the driver's seat, not arrogantly. I think David is in a good place with God. He's not being arrogant about it, but he thinks he's calling the shots for a minute. God, I'm going to do this for you. When in actuality, God turns things on him very quickly and reminds David, hey, listen, I'm in the driver's seat. I'm the one who calls the shots here. He reminds David that God is not a cause that David needs to champion or support, but rather God is the one who's actually in the driver's seat of David's life. He's also the one who's in the driver's seat of our life. And so instead of David building a house for him, God will build a house for David. So we see here in these first few verses that God's rescue plan is based on his covenant love for his people. And that salvation, the salvation that we receive from God is built by God and God alone. So while David thought that he would build a house for God, God offers something much bigger instead that really never would have entered David's mind. The second thing that we see in this passage is that God's rescue plan involves his people representing him on earth. God's rescue plan involves his people representing him on earth. As I mentioned just a, build, just a bit ago, the, the covenant that God makes with David in this passage builds on the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant that God made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And this is, this is a beautiful thing because the Davidic covenant continues this story of God's redemption. It pushes it forward and continues it going. God's kingdom is going to be manifested best when David rules underneath the rule of God. Does that make sense? You following along with me there? That as God follows David, I mean, I'm sorry, as David follows God, he then leads the people to do the same thing. So David is living in obedience, and he leads the people to live in obedience. This will only be successful so far as David rules in accordance with what God says. 
And the language here should call our attention back to the words that God spoke to Abraham. Look at verse 9. God says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And now listen to Genesis 12, 2 through 3. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. God says this to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Sounds familiar, right? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in all of the families of the earth, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this callback to the words that God spoke to Abraham are a clue for us that the promise to Abraham is about to be focused and fulfilled through Israel's king. David is to represent God to the people of the earth, and then the people of Israel will represent God to the rest of the world. This is God's plan. The Lord promised to establish David's kingdom forever, which means that he would never withdraw his faithful love from David's house. David, as the king, is to drive God's people to worship the true God of the universe. The anointed king, David, has this sacred role to serve as the leader of God's people, an an example of what it means to live faithfully to God. But God moves past David to the nation of Israel themselves. God is creating a home for his people that will serve as an example to the rest of the world of the plan he has for rescuing humanity ultimately in Jesus. Israel shines as, the, uh, as a light to the rest of the world that God has a plan for salvation from sin and death. And it's the same thing for us today as the church. We shine as a light to the rest of the world that God has a rescue plan. God has a plan to rescue us from sin and death. However, Israel and its king didn't always shine that light very well. And that's where we come to the final point this morning. The third thing we see here is that God's rescue plan provides comfort in the face of hopelessness. God's rescue plan provides comfort in the face of hopelessness. God makes several promises to David here. Several promises. The covenant with David has some conditions and stipulations, though. We see that clearly in verses 13 through 15. Look at what God says. He's talking now about David's son, Solomon, who will, uh, who, who will build the temple eventually. But look at what he says. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So in verses 13 through 15, God is referring to Solomon who would succeed David and that Solomon made some bad decisions along the way. He did get to build the temple, but he also took on 700 wives. And no offense to all you ladies, but that seems a little excessive to me, right? So he takes on these these extra wives and he makes some bad decisions. And even as the wisest man to ever live, he is not completely obedient to God. Yet, God does not remove his steadfast love from Solomon. He's made this promise to, to David that extends to Solomon. That the covenant will be fulfilled, but individual kings along the way will transgress 
and will not experience blessings. And we see this through Israel's history. If we were to continue reading through 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, we would know the story that the nation would eventually end up in exile under foreign rule in Babylon and Persia. And even in the second temple period after they were allowed to return from exile, you don't see any Jewish ruler from David's line exercising authority on the throne. There's nobody from the line of David. But even as the kingship seemed to be dissolving because the kings were violating God's covenant, the covenant with David was irrevocable. It did not change the fact that God had made these promises. You see, the kings of Israel were humans just like you and me. They would go on to be described as people who simply made really dumb decisions all the way to being accused of being downright evil. But the point is this. God's words point through Solomon to another king, Jesus. He was the descendant of David whose kingdom would last. He was the descendant who would establish a real temple, not a building constructed by human hands, but the temple of his own body. Jesus is the ultimate destination of the covenant with David. Listen to what, uh, this is Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 67 through 75. It's not on the screen. Let me set the stage for you what's happening here. John the Baptist has just been born. And these is, these are the, this is the first thing that his father Zechariah says after no, his name will be John. So he's been struck mute for nine months while uh, Elizabeth was pregnant with John. He's born. John, or, uh, Zechariah says, nope, his name will be John. And then these are the next words that he says. Luke 1, 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. We should note that Jesus, as the Messiah, him having that status fulfills the covenant with Abraham. For in the birth of Jesus, God was showing mercy promised to the fathers and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, just as Zechariah said there. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, and the promises of land and universal blessings that, were real, that will be realized in him are coming true in this moment. The Davidic covenant is fulfilled as well, this covenant that God makes with David, that it comes through Jesus' obedience as the king. And so Jesus, as the son of David, as the one in that line, if we were to go back and read through uh, the genealogy of Mary and the genealogy of Joseph, he comes from the line of David. And as he lives out in obedience, he fulfills that covenant. So, for all the years that, history, that uh, Israel would go through of wondering if God had forgotten his covenant, wondering if they had messed things up too badly, for all the heartache that David and his descendants would uh, experience, for all the destruction that happens in Jerusalem, for all of that, through all of that, God's rescue plan never fails. 
And that should be a massive source of hope for God's people. That should be a massive source of hope for us. So how do we respond? Well, first and foremost, we remain hopeful. We remain hopeful. At the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, David has hopes and dreams for his life, things that he wants to do for the country. But God reveals his promises and adjusts David's hopes and expectations for his life so that they will fit with God's. So we remain hopeful in the face of difficulty. It's been a difficult couple of weeks around here at Lafayette First, but we can remain hopeful. We see the rescue in the king by understanding that promises that God makes to David still affect us today. The promised king that God talks about here in 2 Samuel 7 is Jesus. And the new covenant that we have in him fulfills the Davidic covenant. As the promised king, we can hope and rest in him. And the rest that we find in Jesus is a lasting rest. We began 2 Samuel 7 with David resting from all the battles. But that rest would be fleeting. There would come a time when that rest would very much come to an end. That David would have to fight more battles and he would go through more strife. But our rest in Christ is lasting. And the hope that we find in him is a lasting hope that we can trust in, even in the face of very, very difficult situations. And as followers of Christ, we are the representation of his image here on earth. We've experienced his covenant love for us, and we get to share it with the world around us. That's why we do things like put ping pong balls into a glass jar, because we get to go and take what we learn here and share it with the world around us. I don't know if you understand how great of an honor and responsibility that is for us as God's followers, that we are to take his steadfast covenant love and share it with others. It doesn't end with us. It doesn't end in this room. It starts in this room and spreads out to the city that we live in. Amen? Thank you. I'm glad you're still awake. Even in the face of what seems like hopeless situations, we can have hope that Christ will have the ultimate victory. And as joint heirs with him, you and I get to share in that victory. We get to celebrate the victory that Christ has over sin and death in our lives. That's why we gather every week, right? We gather on Sunday mornings and celebrate the resurrection every week. That doesn't just happen one Sunday morning in March or April every year. Easter is every Sunday for us. Jesus rose from the dead, and we celebrate that every week. That's why we gather. There's no other reason than to celebrate the fact that our God is alive. And we can share his love with other people. That's why we're here. And today, we have the opportunity to remind ourselves of God's steadfast love for us. We're going to celebrate communion here in just a moment. The fact that we have this sign every uh, time we celebrate it that reminds us of God's covenant love for us. The fact that he loves us more than we possibly could imagine. That he gave himself for us and that we get to share that with the world around us. So we're going to celebrate that today. Derek's going to come and lead us in that. But as he comes, let me pray for us. Father, you are good. Thank you that you have a plan of rescue that we can trust in and know. And Father, I pray that uh, today, as we celebrate communion, that it wouldn't just be a little cracker and some juice. But God, we would understand what it means. 
that we have a Savior whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled so that we might have rescue. God, I pray that that wouldn't just pass by us today. Lord, it would affect us. It would affect the way that we live from this point forward, that we would understand that you rescued us from sin and death, and we can trust in you today. God, thank you for this time. I pray that we would celebrate and worship even now as we, um, as we share communion together. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.